episode of Stocks and Scotch. Uh, this is Eric, and I'm here with uh, my main man, Kentaro, um, looking to bring you some entertainment tonight. And uh, first off, Kentaro, what's Stocks and Scotch? What are we doing here? Uh, basically, uh, it's where uh, it's it's where we like to talk about how to make a lot of money by investing in the market by buying uh, some stocks, right? Some cert- some specialized stocks that we believe in, while drinking scotch because, boy, do we love our our whiskeys. <laughs> that makes everything better. It, it does. It does. Uh, it, we always gotta gotta load up on that hard liquor uh, because, as you know, these past uh, few weeks or a couple last po- uh, past couple of months, it's been it's been hectic in the market. Yeah, it's definitely been a. Uh, it's probably been I don't know. This word is overused. A historic time, and it's definitely <laughs> uh, it's definitely easy. It's definitely good to talk about these things. Unfortunately, uh, we don't get to see each other every week uh, like we used to because of the lockdown. Um, but uh, I'd also like to add that you know when thinking about stocks, it's fun to talk about businesses and. You know, what happens to them, um, you know, all these businesses are like a kind of a, a fabric. And if you pull on one thread, then, you know, something else will, some other part of the, the fabric will will bend or warp or what have you. And kind of understanding that's um, kind of cool. I mean, businesses are, stocks reflect businesses and businesses are living, breathing um, organizations. Um, and, you uh, there are a lot of things which a lot of relationships which are, yeah, maybe prosaic, uh, but they're kind of cool when you talk about them or you discover them. And, uh, you know, it's probably better to talk about it over scotch than um, being exhausted and, and drenched in sweat after kendo practice. Um, when like, at least for me, at least, I'm, I'm not I'm not always sure what day of the week it is or what my name is after a. After a long, hard practice, <laughs> definitely this is an easier format for me. Um, but uh, but how did how did Stock Scotch get started? Uh, who came up with the idea? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, yeah, so you mentioned kendo. Uh, I'll start off with like what that is because that that's related to uh, how it started. Uh, so uh, Eric, uh, you and I we we both do kendo, and kendo is a uh, Japanese mar- Japanese martial art where it's basically Japanese fencing, and um, what happened was uh, a lot of our mutual friends uh, within Kendo, uh, they're interested in investing in a market, but they uh, don't have a grasp on what to actually look at when they're investing in a market. So Eric and I, after every Kendo practice, we're usually... Uh, drinking at the bar, just complaining about stocks or talking about stocks, trying to figure out how how do we make more money or how do we uh, increase our uh, our finances by using the market. And a lot of our uh, friends started getting uh, interested in listening to what we have to say. And uh, one of our members, uh, she recommended or put out the idea that you and I should talk about these things because, you know, uh, 
you are in a position where you are very well established. I'm in a position coming from I started uh, investing or not started investing, but I, I have a very a lot less experience uh, with the market, uh, but I have uh, put in a lot more time understanding how to utilize the market uh, or analyze the market. But uh, so th this is kind of a uh, a format where we can talk to everyone, where we can kind of not necessarily guide, but say things that might be good pointers to look out for when looking at stocks, uh, looking at specific stocks. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, for me, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, for me, I just think of it as a way of kind of expanding the conversation that you and I have, you know, every week um, shouting across, <laughs> shouting across the bar at each other um, and uh, just doing a way that other folks can can kind of listen in. Um, let us let us explain in greater detail, um, kind of explain what's going on and what, you know, what are we thinking about when, um, you know, when we're thinking about the given stock and, um you know, this format um, should help facilitate that. So shout out to all of our dojo mates who inspired us to get off our hands and <laughs> and, uh, and get this get the show rolling. I have to preface it with uh, I view Eric as my investing mentor because I know a lot less shit than he does. So uh, I always ask him, uh, am I being an idiot here? <laughs> for doing this shit and he tells me uh i think this is not a good idea or he also tells me uh you, you should uh think about this or maybe it's a good idea but yeah it's uh it's definitely a very uh it's a relationship that i i really appreciate and uh i, I think a lot of other people would appreciate listening to what you have to say about things uh Appreciate that. Thank you, man. And, and I do want to say that actually talking with you helps me. Um, you know, it, it does it does inspire me to like, you know, I, there are a lot of days which I just don't really want to look at another freaking stock. And but if it's something you and I talked about, you know, I, I'm like, you know what, I'll take I want to take a look. And um, I think that, you know, I think talking with you and with other folks um, helps. Uh, you know, helps inspire me to dig in hard into names, which, you know, I really, you know, I wish I really hadn't had the motivation to do so otherwise. So um, this is a, this is a joint, this is a mutual effort that, uh, you know, hopefully um, our listeners can, uh, will get as much out of it as we are. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So uh, I, I've got to start since we're called stocks and scotch, right? The, the latter portion scotch. What are you drinking right now? <laughs> uh right now i am finishing a bottle of uh the kura yoshi malt whiskey from the matsui distillery Ooh, it's um, japanese it is it is um you know i you know what I, I i have a hard time with all the irish uh irish whiskeys like how to actually <laughs> pronounce lafroyeg or whatever and I'm not, you know, not really a Scotch guy. I do like bourbon, but you know what? I've been on a Japanese whiskey kick uh, for a while, so I've been, I've got a couple bottles here that I'm, I'm trying to get through. But this is, uh, and, and I'm sure as we get through the season, there'll be other bottles that'll make their appearance um, on mine the show. But 
But how about you? What 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 uh what are you swelling right now? What's your swell? Uh, so uh, I, I'm a big Scotch person, right? Uh, and right now I am drinking a Glenlivet, uh, 12 years old. Uh, nice. Double oak. And uh, so the reason why I bought this specific uh, bottle was because um, I really like the Balvany double double wood uh, when it uh, when I first found it, and it was just very sweet. It wasn't very peaty. Uh, this one, it's uh, it's also pretty sweet because it's a double oak, um, but it's uh, I, I have to say it's 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 interesting. It's it's different from the Balvany, definitely. Uh, so it's made, it's matured in a European cask and an American oak cask, but it's very, uh, it's on the sweeter side of scotches. And the double oak refers to, so how did, is that part of the, just a process where it, it starts off in one in the European cask and migrates to, uh, you know, the other, I mean, what, what, what is the significance of a double oak process? So, uh, it, so different. Uh, so the way it works is that uh, they mature it in two different uh, oak barrels, and uh, I, I actually don't know the time frame for when it's mature, uh, how long it's matured in a specific barrel. So I, I don't know how long it's matured in a European cask and an American oak cask, uh, but. Uh, so the the reason why is to kind of give it like a different kind of different kick to it or a different taste mm. for it. Nice, nice. So that's that's what we're drinking. Hopefully you are drinking along as well. Um, so. <laughs> Make sure you're squared away there. But before we start on the rest of the podcast, there's just a few words because uh, you know people ask me what do I do all, all day, all week, um, and um, unfortunately, I spend a lot of that uh, listening to financial podcasts. So they've all got a disclaimer, so um, I guess we got to have one too. Um, this is for entertainment purposes only. Uh, we are not investment advisors. <laughs> we are. This is not investment advice. Nothing we say on this show should be construed as um, investment advice or anything that you should uh um anything that you should take uh, or any advice for you um just uh um and just as how we don't get any piece of any of your investment gains and things that work out guess what uh we are not responsible for any investment losses you may incur on your side we we sure hope they aren't any and we'll talk about you know you know we we you know we sure hope that that uh the, the the thought the context we provide around names that we discuss will help you um, avoid losses or minimize them or mitigate them or do something other than just getting wailed on the head. But uh, at the end of the day, you got to do your own damn work, um, and we'll try to help you think about like what that involves or what that looks like. But um, ultimately, it's your own. Um, before making any investment decisions. Um, <laughs> speak with a licensed investment professional. Actually, I, 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 I don't even know why people say that. Everyone does. I mean, the reality is there's no, there's no actual licenses. There are, there are some, you know, three letter acronyms which people have. And the reality is like, they're all useless and, you know, it, it doesn't mean a damn thing. So, um, 
but nonetheless, everyone says it, so we may as well. And finally, in case it wasn't obvious from uh, what we just talked about a minute ago, we are both drinking hard liquor. So um, uh, don't take anything we say on this podcast too seriously. Well, uh, I, I don't know if they should uh, not, <laughs> <Or at all>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not take everything not seriously. But, uh, y- y- you know, uh, I-, I think we want to think uh, talk about like themes. But, uh, yeah, if we're talking about like very specific, uh, like if we're talking about like Tesla, for example, uh, we're never going to say you, you got to invest in Tesla right now. Because uh, that that's just not our thing. Because uh, we we don't want to give you wrong advice, and we we don't want to uh, give mislead you in any way. Uh, but uh, obviously, as Eric Eric has said before, uh, you, you got to make sure you do your own work uh, and your own research in individual stocks uh, before investing in them. Yeah, I mean, all we promise is that we'll share with you just how we're thinking about a given name. And, um, you know, there's a lot that we're not going to be able to cover in a conversation. Um, and uh, but even no matter how much work you do, um, there are always things which happen the unexpected happens um, or mistakes happen. And uh, both are hard to, you know, they're just impossible to eliminate. So um, so. But happy to share how we think about any given situation, micro or macro, um, and hopefully you find that entertaining and useful. So with that, um, so hey man, so how did you how did you get into investing? Well, uh, so I for my day job, right, or my regular full time uh, job, uh, I am an actuary. Uh, so basically. Uh, what that is is it's a lot of statistics, uh, running statistics for insurance, uh, and you know I, 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 I got into being an actuary for money, and I always knew that I needed to be invested in the market, so I always was putting in money into my uh, 401k, which is an employer-sponsored plan, but. Um, I, I got more interested in uh, maximizing my own returns because uh, th- this is a little bit of a knee slash, but uh, COVID-19 has happened. And actuaries, in order to uh, be paid more or to progress in their career field, they need to pass exams, uh, specific exams. So like if you think about like accountants or lawyers, right, then accountants need to pass the CPA Lawyers need to pass the bar exam, right? Uh, financial advice, uh, I think financial advisors need to pass the CFA. Um, actuaries, they need to pass their own actuarial exams in order to progress in their careers. So uh, my exam has been canceled for until October of this year, which is uh, October 2020. Um, and you know, I have a lot of free time and, uh, well, not necessarily free time, but uh, I, I have some time to invest in stocks and I really want to understand how to invest in stocks uh, because I didn't want to have to Google 
what stock should I invest in? Because, you know, uh, they might not give me the best answer because they're, you know, uh, so someone else might be just trying to pump up the stock when there's really nothing under under it. So um, I, I want to maximize my returns uh, in the long term future in order to make sure that I can retire comfortably uh, in the future. Um, yeah. What about you? Well, um, glad you asked. I so uh, in in a prior life, I was um, I was what's called on the buy side. So I worked in an investment firm, um, and it's it's complicated. But there, there are different types of investors out there, and I was what's called. Um, I guess we kind of fit into the value investor bucket. And so, what's a value investor? Long story short, it's someone who kind of evaluates a business and kind of says what's good or bad about it, um, about kind of the, the fundamental characteristics of it, and then tries to take a view on you know, some level, you know, some earnings of the company and says that the value of its stock, you know, of its securities and namely its stock price um, uh, have something to do with the earnings generation capacity of that business and, you know, just how much earnings the absolute level and, you know, what is the risk required to attain it. And so you probably Warren Buffett is probably the, the most famous value investor out there. Um, but, uh, you know, I will say that, uh, it's been, a, you know, the past 10 years have been a long, hard road for, for value folks. Um, there are other kinds of investors like momentum investors who have done a lot better in seemingly, seemingly a lot easier ways. Uh, people like value investors, like to dig, dig deep into companies, understand what they do, um, really get into granular detail. Um, and other folks who don't do this work seem to be doing a hell of a lot better in performance wise. So, um, it's different, but hey, that's how I was trained, and uh, you know, I'm trying to. Uh, I don't know any other way. Um, and uh, when it comes to stocks, I mean, so my my old firm invested in um, private companies, invested in uh, fixed income, so like basically loans and bonds of companies that, in particular, ones that were distressed. And we didn't really buy stocks, um, and but we'd have to look at, you know, we'd have to look at, you know, if we looked at a company that had distressed debt. Um, we'd also have to look at competitors of theirs who, um, you know, had publicly traded stock. And, uh, you know, there'd be moments where, let me give you an example. So one bankruptcy I worked on was charter communications. So cable, cable operator. And to do that, you had to look at, you know, cable company stocks at like Time Warner Cable at the time or Comcast, uh, Boo, Hiss, everyone hates them. But, you know, uh, <laughs> You know, you had to be informed on all of them in order to do. So you did the work on charter, but we, you know, we didn't really have the opportunity to take advantage of, you know, just regular good old stocks like, you know, like Time Warner or or Comcast. And so um, now I have an opportunity to to really chase those opportunities that really didn't fit into our mandate before. Or we couldn't do for reasons X, Y, and Z. I think before we'd look at 100 names and maybe pull the trigger on one. And it was enormously frustrating. And this way, you know, I can kind of, um, you know, if I'm interested in name, I can kind of put a small position on, do some more work. You know, if I decide then I don't like it, I can blow it out without someone yelling at me. Or if I like more, <laughs> I can buy more. And so, or if it goes down, but I like the business uh, or like the stock, I can buy more. So 
like a lot more flexibility as as kind of an individual investor. So um, I've kind of been deploying kind of a you know I guess 13 years of uh, you know kind of related thinking and try to deploy it you know pivot that into you know public stock investing and it's been it's been interesting. So uh, that's uh, that's that's how I got into you know the investing I'm doing today. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely. It, how do you like uh, going out from the corporate lifestyle into uh, the more more single investor lifestyle from it? Uh, because it, it you know it, it's a big change and it's um, yeah, um, yeah it's a it's a really big change because before um, we had kind of a. I guess we would not call it narrow, but I mean, basically it was kind of a narrow mandate. And so things had to fit into that mandate, whether they made money or not. And so, but so at the one hand, it kind of forced you to, it was easier because you kind of had maybe a thousand names to look at. Your addressable universe is like maybe a thousand names. So just pick a number and you can winnow out, you kind of get to a couple dozen names you want to focus on really quickly. So it was easy in that respect. This whole the question of like what names I look at, and now it's you know I no longer play in that field and the dressable universe or the tens of thousands of stocks out there, both in the U.S. and internationally. And so finding trying to decide like hey should I spend time should I invest time into you know this particular name um, that's a that's much harder uh, to have that freedom. It's freedom and it's a privilege, but it's also a lot. It's a pretty hard problem. So that's something which I'm wrestling with every day. It's uh, it's funny you mentioned Buffett, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, the pro- probably the most well-known uh, investor in our lifetime or maybe in in history. Uh, was it Warren Buffett who said? I, I think his quote was, "I like to buy stocks like I like to buy my socks at a discount." <laughs> uh, I, it, it sounds like a, a folksy, a Warren folksyism. I, I'd say that uh, a lot of his uh, aphorisms are just a little bit uh, dirty. Uh, so this is on the cleaner end. <laughs> um, but uh, th- th- there's people don't like it when I, I am what's called on the street to, to, to paraphrase Dave Chappelle on the streets. I'm I'm known as what's called a I'm known as a, a Buffett skeptic. So. Um, and uh, that's not often met with uh, a lot of a, a lot of acclaim. So um, I'll, we can save that for a later discussion. But um, yeah. All right. Yeah. But I think it, but that is a philosophy of what he's what he's trying to go go for. Like he has an idea. He said has a business. He understands what it does. He has an idea of what it might should be worth, and uh, and then he can you know, do the do the math and figure out, like, how does that compare to what the stock price is? And if the stock price is less than what he thinks it's worth, then he buys it and go, jumps into action and buys it. And that's that's the nature of the value investor. You know, other people like a momentum person might say, OK, well, I'm going to buy what's already going up. And, you know, while that sounds silly, it actually is not wrong. So uh, so. You know, value investors like Buffett are not doing that. They look for stuff which they consider is is on sale, but that judgment is really it's a really nuanced and delicate judgment based on 
the financials of the business and um, you know the you know just the, the 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 characteristics of the business and you know as as episodes go on we're we're happy to kind of talk through different perspectives on on what those what exactly we mean by that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, but we, we will definitely talk about uh, those different metrics that uh, they, they may be looking at. Uh, we obviously can't talk about it in this specific episode because uh, we, we just don't have enough time. But uh, let me just move on a little bit. Uh, so, Eric, uh, when do you think is a good time to invest? Because um, a lot of people, they're they're worried about this whole bull market that had happened uh, all through uh, the Great Recession. And uh, right now there's uh, COVID-19 happening. But uh, when do you think it's a good time to actually invest? So, yeah, and that is a $64,000 or $64 trillion question. Um I mean, the 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 answer is um, every everybody thinks they can time the market, and if you could, that would be the winning strategy. But it, you never know, and um, and so there's never a good time to invest or the right time to invest. Um, you know, I think um, I think probably the best advice is to hold your nose, take the plunge, um, and um, then it becomes a question of okay well then how much or you know how much do you deploy now versus later um i think you know for me personally um i signed on cash for you know the better part of 20 years um for you know a variety of reasons but um you know and there there are a lot of investment returns that were happening during that time frame that i didn't really participate in so um, and that's because I kept waiting for like, okay, just one more crash. Let's come on, give me a crash. I'll invest at the bottom. And uh, even though I know rationally, it's that's ridiculous, but it's a really hard impulse to be. Um, I mean, that, that that's my two cents. And you know, I think we're it's good to talk about. You know, we're I think one of the things we're going to talk about is, okay, well, how do you leg into the market? But I mean, but Cantor, uh, how about you? Like, when do you think is how did you how do you decide to jump in, and how are you managing in like you said, this period of, of great uncertainty? Well, um, for me personally, since I, I'm in a different stage of my investment portfolio than you are, uh, I I just dollar cost average my way into the market because I don't believe I can time the market. I don't know when the bottom is. Just like you said, I, I don't know how to time the market. I think that's a... A foolish errand to try to do so um, I, I don't uh, try to pretend that I, I know uh, I am a genius in this aspect but uh, I, basically I just I put in money every month into the market uh, I, I am holding a little bit of cash right now because of this whole COVID-19 uh, situation and I'm just waiting to see uh, how the situation turns, but uh, yeah, normally I, I just continuously put money into the market um, because uh, personally I, I don't believe I can tie the market and 
buy a particular stock at its lowest point at that particular time or even at its lowest point of time because uh let's say uh if you took like apple right and you were just trying and you know there, there was that whole uh debacle with um the batteries not lasting as long and you were hoping it would drop down to really low prices right but it just kept shooting back up uh how, how do you what do you what's the price point of that uh i don't know what that price point is so uh i i don't try to time the market um i i just try to continuously uh put money in because i know the long-term gains of what I'm doing will eventually uh, eventually pay off uh, since I'm looking at specific metrics and I'm uh, just trying to make sure that the business is healthy, my investment thesis is healthy. Um, yeah, uh, that that's yeah. Like you said, I I think that's a fool's errand to try to time the market. Uh, I, I don't think anyone has uh, a real foolproof way of actually doing that. Uh, And if they say they do, then I think they're full of shit. Uh, Don't listen to them at all. Yeah. I definitely definitely think there are some principles which might be helpful to keep in mind. Um, One thing that you you can borrow from Buffett is, um, you know, he's been, he basically says he's been betting on the American economy for, I guess, 70 years now. Well, 60, 70 years now. And I think that's generally true. Um, you know, so long as our economy is growing, we have population growth. And this is it, it sounds really dopey, dopey. But so long as we have pop- population growth and economic growth, you know, the, the U.S. stock market is generally going to keep growing. Um, it'll you know, the companies generate cash. They're profitable. They make cash. So all that kind of drives shareholder returns. But you know, those earnings are going to grow so long as our economy is growing. Um, and, uh, um, you know, even if you're wrong, you're long and wrong, you know, kind of at a, at a high at a end, the market drops, you know, generally speaking, if you hold in, you'll eventually get your money back. Um, you know, the, but the things to look out for are markets like, you know, Japan or, or Europe, where you, they've got a lot of economic stagnation because, Number one, population is stagnating. Number two, they just don't have the innovation and, you know, kind of just, you know, if you think about all the all the great products that you're using or come out of the world, I mean, you know, they're kind of all developed here. And so, you know, if you have the basic faith, I think then, you know, U.S. equities are generally, you know, they go up and down, but you should be okay if you invest for the long term. Um, and, uh, you know, you're almost worse off if you try to time the bottom and just sort of miss out on, on gains. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a basic tenet to, to kind of keep in mind. Um, there's a lot of noise out there, and it's just, it just seems impossible to figure out what the right path is when you're kind of crushed by all this noise. But um, um, I think that's, that's one kind of guiding principle to kind of keep in mind. Um, you know, and uh, I, I, I think, um, you know, maybe, you know, with respect to today's market, so going back to the original question, I mean, um, these are these are really wacky times. I mean, we're basically looking down the barrel of um, an actual depression uh, with, you know, 
massive unemployment and it's unclear you know, how quickly the economy is going to start back up whenever quarantine gets lifted. Um, so with a depression, unemployment, you think that the stock market ought to be down, but you know it's been ever since for the past little over six weeks, five weeks, it's been on a giant rip. Um, you know, I think a lot of the, for what it's worth, um, the majority of, I guess, I don't know, call smart money, you know, kind of hedge fund managers, stuff like that, they're pretty bearish. I mean, they, they kind of generally think that, you know, stock prices have run ahead of the economy. It'll have to kind of, the economy's going to suck, so therefore stock prices will have to come back down. Um, there'll be kind of a crystallizing moment when people realize that and they say, you know, this mini rally that we've had has just been too good. It's unfounded and people will try to get out. Um, and, uh, uh, but at the same time, there are other folks who say that, you know what, no matter how bad it gets, the federal reserve will, you know, come to the rescue and, you know, if not for the entire economy, then definitely for stocks. And so, you know, I think for from February to March, those folks are definitely wrong. Uh, the Fed could not do enough to stop the bleeding. But, uh, you know, I think uh, I think long story short, it, it's really hard to tell. Um, maybe maybe in terms of what you do now, um, you know, we'll re- revisit that in greater detail. Um, but, uh, you know, keep in mind how much you want to risk now versus how much you want to put in later on if uh, if things do go south. Yeah, definitely. Um, things can go south really quickly if you're not uh, if you're not looking at the uh, at how healthy the business might be actually uh, actually is. Um, like if a company's just hemorrhaging money all the time, but the stock price is uh, going up. There, there's something that you have to do a little bit more research on on why that's happening, and um, it, you know you, you don't want to be invested in it for a very long time. Uh, when when we're talking about like investing, we're talking about like investing as a long term plan, like uh, potentially years long, right? Uh, so, uh, but when when we're talking about trading, right? We're t- talking about like trading, as in we're we're just trying to uh, get get profits. Uh, sorry, not not get profits. Uh, not, profits is not the right word, but uh, try to maximize our returns very quickly in a short amount of time. And uh, so yeah. Uh, we're talking about uh, investing here, and we just want to be investing in healthy businesses for the long uh, long term, and we want to make sure that uh, you. We talk about the uh, evaluations that valuation metrics that uh, you can kind of see and make sure that you're not uh, doing something that is maybe foolhardy. In those terms. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great distinction that I think folks should appreciate between trading and investing. I mean, trading, you're kind of looking to, you know, collect a lot of short-term gains. Think about it as, you know, um, you know, picking up, you know, hitting for singles or walks, uh, just get a bunch of those. Um, I think when people think of investing, you know, it's it's a little bit more towards a longer time time frame and you know, with the basic tenet of like, look, this is a really great business. We're going to do really well. And we'll kind of talk about what that means. 
Uh, but you know that'll be reflected in the stock price over time. It ought to go up over time. Um, there's a lot of evidence that it should, and that's maybe something I want to hold on for a long period of time and um, make significantly higher returns with higher invested capital. So I think uh, you know that's kind of a distinction between trading and investing. And investing, you know, it, it can be more rewarding because you're you really got to ask yourself, do I understand this business in order to make an investment versus a versus a trade? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so we talked about um, kind of like uh, time periods of when to invest and how uh, you and I, we, we both be- don't believe that we can time the market at all. But uh, I, I think we should talk about uh, so what type of tools are, are you using to actually invest? Uh, because, you know, yeah. the, there's a lot of uh, investment uh, applications or investment uh, products that you can use to actually invest your hard-earned money into the market. So uh, what, what type of uh, products do you use? So uh, first things first... Um you need to get organized about what are you looking at? What names are you following? And I, I actually recommend, I think the easiest thing to do is just use Yahoo Finance, both the app and, and the website. And, you know, Yahoo is, is not exactly like the, you know, the market leader in, in technology, but the, the unique thing about Yahoo Finance is that they have real-time quotes on stocks. So uh, we'll get to this, but when you try to transact, when you try to buy or sell a stock, you're often looking at a market quote, which is 15 minutes delayed. And um, in volatile times like now, um, you know, you may think that the stock price is at X, but it's really moved 20 cents, 50 cents, a dollar within the 15 minute time period. So Yahoo Finance, actually, I, I use it as as a way to. I mean, as a real-time feed, it's incredibly useful. I think the you can create portfolios of stocks by themes, um, by industry, or by like you know these are um, you know this is a character or maybe characteristics that you're kind of digging around in. It's easy to kind of keep it organized. Um, so I, I would start there. Um, in terms of how do you actually trade? Well, um, I use uh, traditional online brokerages. So Fidelity, Charles Schwab, uh, TD Ameritrade. Um, there, there are others like, uh, I guess, E-Trade, which I don't have an account with. Um, yeah, they're kind of all mostly the same. They all, uh, uh, they all have free trading. They all have, um, you know, delayed, you know, 15-minute delayed quotes, which is really annoying. They have a lot of tools which are actually not that useful. So they all kind of, they all kind of work um, equally well or poorly, if you will. Um, for options, if you're, if you're heavy into options, which is probably beyond the scope of this podcast, um, I think Ameritrade is probably the easiest. I'm not sure you get the, the best pricing. Um, I just, I, I don't even know where to, how to answer that question. Um, for really heavyweight, more professional grade guys, there's an online broker called Interactive Brokers. I, I do not recommend that people use it because it is a very intimidating interface. Uh, it's pretty overwhelming, but it is they have a lot of options and, you know, there are people running funds through, you know, managing, you know, real amounts of money through IB. 
Um, and then there's, uh, I guess, the apps. Um, so there's Robinhood. Um, I, I really hate Robinhood. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'll just declare my bias up front. Um, uh, it is convenient. I think it basically reduces investing down to gambling, uh, one of the reasons why I don't like it. Um, there are other, but I think there are technological issues that um, you have no idea if they've solved or are ahead of. Um, like after the leap year, I think Robinhood went down for two days, two very critical days. Um, and, uh, that's not really what you want. I mean, you know, there every, every decade or so one or two brokerages fail and you never want to be a client. You know, you, you just get tied up for years in, in a, a brokerage failure. So that's why I'm worried about Robinhood. Um, I haven't looked at cash app or Wealthfront. I mean, they all kind of have like kind of similar, you know, trading kind of similar to Robinhood. Um, I'm going to hope. Maybe hope I've not done the work, so don't take this as advice. But um, yeah, that maybe Square Square is behind Cash App, so maybe it's a little bit better. Um, but that's that. But for all these, what you do is that you link up your bank account to your brokerage account using uh, what's called ACH, Automated Clearinghouse Instructions, and you just say transfer over this amount of money, and uh, then it shows up in your trading account, and then you're uh, you're ready to then you're ready to go. Um, so I'd say those are kind of the primary tools to just to, just to get started. Um, there's a wealth of information out there about how to uh, investigate companies, um, how do you organize your research, you know, uh, how do you get free research, what research is worth paying for, um, and we'll definitely dive into it. But there's just, but again, the, but the main problem there is how do I identify the signal from the noise out there? Because there's just an unending stream of people peddling advice or information about stocks. And, you know, a lot of it's not really that useful. So, you know, we'll kind of uh, talk about which ones are, which, you know, which ones are useful or um, you know, how do you get started? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, Robin hood because uh, as uh, you and I have known uh, Robin hood, their uh, platform has completely stopped working uh, during this COVID-19 uh, portion. Oh, sorry, not completely stopped working. They, they have stopped working a few times during this COVID-19 uh, timeframe because um, there has been a lot of trades that happen. And I think they, uh, I, I don't quite remember, but I think they hit, hit their like trade limits that they're allowed to hit uh and basically people who were uh trying to like get out of certain positions uh at the time uh, or get into positions uh they they were not allowed to because the entire platform had crashed at those times um and uh, uh I, I do not use robin hood um I, I use charles schwab uh because I, I don't feel comfortable using uh, Robinhood, but uh, you know, uh, Robinhood's first uh, allure to being utilized was a zero commission-free trading, which was, uh, I, I think, a great thing, uh, and it really spurred on the rest of the industry to make sure that everyone else had commission-free trading. But uh, I, I just don't. I don't see the reason why someone should use Robinhood 
over the other major brokerage brokerages because everyone else has commission fruit trading and their platforms do not crash. Um, you can do everything you can on Robinhood. You can do it online. You can do it with an app, right? There's no reason why you should, uh, in our opinion, at least I think Robinhood is shit, uh, also, uh, so why use Robinhood when it crashes when you can use like something else that is not going to fail you when you need it to work? Yeah, and a lot of people have time sensitive positions, which uh, you know you, <laughs> when you're bro- when the broker when the when the brokerage is non responsive or down, then those are very stressful days. I mean, um, you know, I think we have to give them a lot of credit for moving the industry to zero commission trading and giving the benefit to individual shareholders. Uh, but it is, uh, um, yeah, in addition to, I, I think um, in terms of the technological limitations, I think, um, you know, on the first Monday after the, the first trading day after the leap year um, uh, was on a calendar basis, March 2nd. And then some guy, you know, when Robinhood went down, some guy went to their website and dug into the HTML and found that like the server kept trying to reference Monday, March 3rd. In other words, it hadn't you know, hadn't forgot about February 29th, which I think was like a Saturday or Sunday. And that problem went unnoticed until Monday morning and nothing worked because it was looking for the wrong day. And it took them, I think, two, 48 hours, so two full trading days to correct that. So, you know, for those of you who code, um, you know, I hope, uh, uh, you know, I, I think there's a collective, like, what the hell are you guys doing response? So it doesn't really inspire a whole lot of confidence in the Robinhood platform. Obviously, that specific problem is probably not going to repeat for another four years, and they probably will have fixed it by now. But um, it does uh, uh, it, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. So, um, yeah, I, I would definitely vouch for Schwab as something that that works pretty well. I do agree with you. Um, I, I personally use Schwab also. Uh, they they have this. Uh, portion called street smart that uh provides real-time um prices and it, it it is great uh i've used it a couple times and there are just numbers flashing everywhere and i have no idea what's happening um uh, sorry uh yeah it, it's just like uh numbers flashing everywhere and um it, it, it is it, it is a bit crazy uh looking at it and seeing how the market reacts uh, very quickly uh, with real-time pricing uh, put in. But uh, yeah, let, let's move on a little bit. Uh, so uh, we talked about a little bit about uh, different investing platforms, but uh, now let's get into the meat of it. Uh, so as, as an investor, Right. Uh, I personally invest in stocks, but uh, do you believe I should buy individual stocks or should I buy uh, ETFs, which are uh, commonly referred to as exchange traded funds? Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a great question. So I mean, just for those who who aren't uh, as familiar with the lingo. So an exchange. So basically, uh, there's a concept there. There's a lot of stocks out there. There's a concept of a stock market index, which will take, you know, which will take, you know, for example, the biggest, say the 500 biggest stocks 
and track those. And number one, it's a useful data point as a kind of a, a shorthand gauge of how the market is doing on aggregate. Is it up? Is it down? Uh, but then folks have built funds, which uh, will basically mirror those indices. Um, and the most well-known are uh, the S&P 500 index. And there are a lot of options for ETFs or index funds, which basically will track that index. And so, you know, when you when you put your money into an ETF, uh, there is some algorithm which will take your dollars and essentially allocate them. We'll, we'll put them to fund and the fund will allocate them into, um, you know, some proportionate amount of each of, say, those 500 shares. And uh, for the S&P 500 and for their other indices out there for which other ETFs kind of track those. So um, that's a way of kind of getting exposure to the market, but not following individual names. Um, I'd say, you know, um, it's fun talking about individual stocks. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Canton and I are, are um, like, you know, that's what we do. We like to talk about, we're not high-fiving on how much money we make um, or lost, but we're really talking about like, you know, what does this business do and what's cool about it and whatnot. And you really get that from following individual names. And if you've done the work, you may as well buy the stock, but it is a lot of work. It is a lot of time spent, invested, and, um you know, there's also risk in following being invested in one company. Um, you know, something could go wrong with just that one company. And so, um, you know, if you're not really, my guess is if you're not really willing to um, spend the time to follow individual names, then yeah, you know, an ETF I think is a good option. And I, you know, for 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 nuance, the structural reasons that are probably difficult to get into right now. Um, just any old S&P 500 fund is, you know, kind of a, it's a cheaper, better mousetrap and it's good enough. Um, it's not without issues and we can talk about those, but, um, I think, you know, that's probably the best option for folks who are just, you know, want to get their feet wet, but, you know, aren't, don't feel ready to buy individual company names or, um, you know, aren't comfortable with the risk or, um, you know, can't really spend the time to really, you know, follow the follow these companies. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think Warren Buffett um, has always said that uh, investing in. Uh, so the I, I think the most widely uh, invested fund for the S and P 500 is uh, SPY. So SPY, um, and Warren Buffett has always said like. Uh, it, it, it's wonderful to invest in the S&P 500 because you can get basically a basket of businesses that uh, that are deemed uh, well-performing by a different branch uh, of another another company. But uh, yeah, it, it, exactly what you said. Uh, we like to talk about individual stocks uh, and. Uh, even though our exposure to individual stocks, uh, they might that they're definitely higher than the S&P 500, uh, we make sure to do our research on these individual stocks to make sure that our returns are uh, what they what we expect them to return to us in the future. Uh, so we're, we're not so to say that we're gambling is 
very wrong. Uh, we don't believe we're gambling at all. We are investing. There's a very huge difference between gambling and investing. Uh, j- just want to preface that before uh, we, we dive into more. But we, we can talk about uh, how we look at businesses rather than how we look at trading. Um, it also goes back to what we talked about earlier uh, to be. Yeah. Uh, so we're a little strapped on time. Uh, so uh, let's move on a little bit. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I, I guess we could start uh, talking about like uh, some questions that some of our close friends has sent in to talk about. So uh, I guess, do, do you want to go over the first question? Sure, sure. First question is, um, you know, what percentage of my spare money should I invest in the stock market? Actually, the, the question is, how much money should I spend in the stock market? And I think the difference between spend and invest, I think, is something that you know, we can talk about. But, you know, Cantona, what, what do you think? So, uh, it, it really depends person to person. Um, I, I don't think there's a set percentage for uh, everyone because everyone, they're at a different point of their life or a different stage of their life right um so i i uh, i view this as first uh do you have an emergency fund uh because you don't want to be irresponsible with your money right so do, do you have like three to six months of uh a safety fund um already established right uh, a safety fund is basically where you can uh let's say you got laid off tomorrow are you able to pay all your rent and all your utilities and all your food expenses, like everything you need to be able to live in the future uh, in in the next three or three to six months? Or are you able to pay all those expenses? Um, and uh, if you were not able to have a stable income in order to pay those expenses, uh, I, I think that's the most important portion first. Uh, because yeah it, there's no there's uh not a good way to invest in the market if you can't pay those expenses after that though uh you don't have to have a lot of money to spend in the market all of a sudden uh, you, you can be something called dollar cost averaging your way into the market which is basically let's say uh after you have your emergency fund or your safety net um let's say you only have like a hundred dollars left over every month like after your budget just put in a hundred dollars every month into the market i you'll be so much so far better off putting in a hundred dollars every month into the market rather than uh, not putting it into the market. Uh, I view the money that I put into the market as an expense at the beginning of the month because uh, let's say, you know, anyone who makes a budget, right? They put out a budget and the budget can potentially change you might be spending more money in a particular week you may you might be spending more money in the next week or something like that but uh it's it's variable it it can it can change from week to week right 
But if you spend that, if you put that money into the market, right, it's it's already in the market. And so let's say you're putting that market into an IRA, which is an individual retirement account. If you take that money account, uh, barring any other kind of like nitty gritty rules that we're not talking about right now, you can you can face some, some tax penalties from that. Um, but uh, just just if, if you put that if you treat the money that you put into the market as an expense, uh, or you believe that it's an expense, then um, you will uh, psychologically work your way around uh, using that money that you already have put into the market because that's already built into your budget. So uh, I say just put in the money that you can afford into the market. So like I said, $100 is fine. $200 is fine. Personally, I put in $500 a month because um, I, I want to maximize my returns in the future. But, you know, like I said, there's there's no good time uh, to put in money into the market. You, you just no one can time the market, and anyone who says they can time the market, they're full of shit. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, just it's 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 a foolhardy errand to try to time the market. Uh, yeah, so that's that's my viewpoint. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, like you know, kind of uh, the, the the question of you're investing, how you think about investments is is the important part of the bigger personal finance picture, and so you need to have a good sense of that picture, and it'll change over time. And the other thing I'd add to is that um, you know when you take money out and set aside and invest it, you're you're not spending it. You're you know, it's, it's you know, it, it unlike other unlike actual expenditures, this you know, the intention here is that it'll grow over time and over ten years it'll double or you know, you know, and and then another ten years, another ten years, and so by the time you retire, um, that hundred bucks they spent that you invested in any given month might be worth you know a thousand dollars, and um, and if you've done that every month, then you'll have $12,000 when you retire. And if you do that for 40 years of working, then you can kind of do the math. And it kind of, there's the, the power of compounding, which we won't get here as well. But I mean, the idea here is um, while you're working and doing your daily life, you invest, I mean, that will uh, hopefully uh, continue to appreciate in value um, without, you know, any attention, you know, without, in other words, while you're doing your day job and so forth, the money invest will grow in value over time. And so um, that's an important tool to have so that you have you know, retirement funds in the future or, you know, more money spent in the future or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, I, I completely agree with your sentiment uh, there. Um, so uh, I, I'd like to move on to our next question. Um, so, uh, as we know, this COVID-19, uh, situation, it has really wrecked our, um, uh, economic situation and it has really changed the way we have, we are currently living under. 
So uh, what what's your perspective on the financial impact of this uh, pandemic? And can you discuss how certain interest industries will be affected? Yeah, um, I, I think this is the question which everyone is struggling with right now. Um, you know, we're, we're living in an unprecedented time. I think, you know, uh, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but unemployment is probably going to exceed the levels that we saw in the Great Depression. Um, we're going to have, you know, periods where businesses will be booking, you know, their their revenue will basically have gone to zero for a lot of businesses out there. I think of hotels, air, um, airlines, stuff like that, and cruise lines, <laughs> uh, I guess. Um, and so, and people have never really dealt with these situations before. And so, um, I think, um, you know, it, it's hard to say definitive, definitively, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around COVID-19 and its economic impact. Um, I'd say that, you know, you have to split your view as to what's a short-term impact. And second, can they, how, you know, do they have, the wherewithal to get out of this short-term period, uh, hopefully short-term period, and what does a long-term picture look like? Um, and you can do this with any business which you know or are familiar with. Um, you know, I think let's pick on hotels, for example. Um, people are at home, they're not traveling. They're certainly not tra- traveling internationally, but they're not traveling domestically or even you know, leaving their home. So, you know, hotel demand is basically zero. And, um, you know, they're not booking any revenue, but they've got costs. They've got to pay utilities, taxes. If they borrowed money, most of many of them did. Um, they've got to pay interest. Um, and so there's a question of, um, you know, are the owners of the of those businesses gonna gonna survive? Um, I think, you know, and if you're owning stock, you're basically an owner of the company. So I think um, you have to be really careful about what kind of hotel, if you want to invest in hotel companies, which ones do you invest in? And in fact, there are some hotel companies, hotel stocks, which really don't own any hotels at all. And so when you look at Hilton and Marriott, and so you really have to kind of get in, ask yourself, what exactly is the business of uh, the names that we're looking at? And then you, then you can start to get more specific about how do they navigate, what is our current impact and how do they navigate it and what does the future look like? And talking about and thinking about what the future looks like, I think is a lot of fun. You know, for example, a lot of people say, you know, people have discovered that they don't need business travel. There was a lot of unnecessary business travel. So the demand for business flights and business lodging is going to go down permanently. And there are some other people say, yeah, that, that might be true, but you know, the minute that, you know, you lose a sales contract, a, you know, there's a competitive sales process and you lose because you didn't fly out to meet the client, then you're going to start to fly to meet the client no matter what. So, um, yeah, maybe so maybe things go back to normal. I think, um, you know, um, it's uh, it, it's you got to go industry by industry. Every industry needs to be looked at from tech to food to transportation um to industrials um you know everything you kind of have to revisit um you know really basic assumptions about how these businesses work um just to answer the questions of what's happening to them today and how do they navigate their way out yeah definitely and and uh i i'd also like to add that uh it's also really important to look at uh, each company's specific balance sheets uh or their financial statements because uh that's where uh, you know the saying 
the devils and details and you could actually see um, how the business uh, what they're doing with the uh, assets that they might have like how much cash are they holding uh, how much debt do they have like uh, how many uh, you know with debts right like how what are their loan loan rates right uh, kind of like individual right because uh, if you if a person has a very high credit score right they're, they're deemed very um, safe uh, to loan out like a mortgage or whatever so uh, they're able to get like a lower rate on their mortgage loans but if, a, if someone is deemed uh, kind of risky right they're deemed very uh, dangerous to uh, lend out some money. So uh, I, businesses are the same way as individuals. You know, there, there's a whole rating system on that, and we won't go into that right now. But uh, yeah, I, I do. Yeah, um, I, I I do think what you said kind of really encapsulates uh, all of that, and you really have to do your own research on. Um, what you are comfortable with and what you want to do uh, with your money. But uh, we hope that you don't make any rash decisions and we hope uh, that everything works out well in the end. Um, so yeah. uh, l let me go on, on to the next question. Uh, so as you know, uh, Oil is a big topic this week, and uh, there is a lot of things happening with oil. Like uh, I, I don't know if you know, but there was even a wiki page created for uh, when the OPEC Plus uh, was not able to come to an agreement with Russia, and I think they called it Black Monday um, on Wikipedia, where... <laughs> Basically, all the oil prices just crashed uh, because of that. Uh, so, uh, I, I just uh, the question was, uh, could you discuss your view on uh, why the price of crude oil dropped uh, following the bullish information from OPEC and Trump around the reduction in oil production? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's it's a topic which you could spend hours on. I think, in a nutshell, uh, because of COVID-related quarantines, lockdowns, shut-ins. Um, you know, I, I, let's put it this way. So every day, the world uses about 100 million barrels of crude oil. Um, and in a balanced market, about 100 million is pumped out of the ground every day, 100 million barrels. Uh, but because of co the, COVID re you know, the reaction to COVID, the demand, the usage of crude oil has gone down by about, by some people, it was originally people thought of it down 20 million barrels a day, then became 25, and now it's 30 million barrels a day. And um, the, so that's the demand side. And the supply side really hasn't changed that much. And what the OPEC Plus agreement was supposed to do was come to agreement where everyone would cut, um, uh, would cut production to align supply with current levels of demand and bring kind of the market back into balance. Um, commodities like oil have this ugly, ugly little game theory where um, – you know, if you're the only person who cuts production, you lose. Um, everyone else benefits. So the game theory is horrible. 
And so that's why we have things like OPEC plus cartels. Um, long story short, they, they basically talked about, they ultimately, they were talked about and came to an agreement on a 10 million barrel a day cut, which is nice. They've never had a cut that big before, but um, uh, well, actually to back up a little bit, when COVID originally kicked off and Chinese demand dropped, the Saudis said, look, we, you, there's going to be this imbalance supply and demand, and we got to do something about it, get ahead of this problem. So they rounded up OPEC plus, which includes Russia, and you know, said, hey, we gotta, everyone's got to cut. And the Russians basically said, no, thank you. Um, uh, what is believed is that the Russians, um, they don't, they're not really friends of the U.S., and in particular... Um, they don't like the fact that we have a healthy domestic oil industry. And so they view this as if we if we all cut production, the Americans aren't. So why are we doing them any favors? No, we're going to sit this one out. Um, and OPEC kind of fell apart. There's no cut agreed to. The Saudis decided to, like, you know what, we're going to go ham on the oil market. So they 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 said that we're going to increase our since we didn't agree to a cut we're going to actually increase our supply and by the way we're also going to cut prices on our oil and we're going to put so much pain on everybody else in the market until uh you know until everyone comes back to the table all the oil suppliers come back to the table we actually agree to a cut um and you know i think there are a couple layers of what's going on here i think part of it is that the saudis as well are not really happy about losing market share to American oil producers. And this is a way for them to uh, deal with that by but using the Russians as the, as the bad guys. Um, so it went from a, a market in, in, in balance to a market with too much supply. And then the Saudis ramped up supply and it triggered a price war. And it got so bad that OPEC got to, got back together and said, hey, we've got to actually, with, with now the Americans this time, said, hey, we've got to come to an agreement. They agreed on cutting 10 million barrels. But the problem is it's a 30 million barrel gap. And so, um, you know, there was some minor euphoria leading up to the OPEC meeting. But coming out of the meeting, as Kentaro said, the people realized that it just wasn't enough. There's far too much oil sloshing around every day, being pumped every day. And so uh, that led to the... the you know, the latest round of oil market gyrations. And in particular, um, there's this concept of headlines of oil going negative, where barrels of crude oil were ostensibly trading um, for negative money. Um, the, the, the best example, I, the best analogy I've heard, I've heard a couple, but the, the cleanest and best example I've heard is, you know, imagine that you have you, you have two couches in your apartment and uh, you got to get rid of it. So you, you mark it down. You put on Craigslist, you mark it down. You get an offer for a discount, and there are no takers. So you list it again, and you lower, put out a lower price, and you get your move-out date, and you're like, I've got to get rid of this goddamn thing. I'll give it away for free. And you're moving out, and you're like, you know what? I've got to get rid of it. I will pay someone to get rid of this sofa for me. And so that sofa is a barrel of crude oil. And that's kind of what happened because of it, and it's very nuanced and very quirky. The, the the mechanics of that happened. That's kind of what happened to some oil market participants, and that's why you saw a quote unquote negative barrel of oil. Um, there's no way you could have actually bought it. Um, it it's um, I think it was on very little volume, but uh, um, you know maybe I'll save that for another time. I think the bigger the bigger implication for people here um, is that. 
the gas prices are not going to go negative. They are coming down, have come down a lot. It's not going to go negative. But I think the bigger issue is, you know, the stock market has rallied because everyone has said, well, things are going to be okay. We'll cross our fingers that things are going to be okay. But when you see something like crude oil do something this mind-blowingly bizarre, you're, it's a rude reminder that, like, actually beneath the surface in these little mechanics, which people aren't paying attention to, um, things are things are fucked up and wrong. And there's a lot of risk out there. There's a lot of danger out there. And there was sort of a reminder to everyone that we are in extremely dangerous times. And so, you know, I think um, it, uh, that I think is the broader implication for you know, everyone who's invested in the market. Um, it could be there, there. There are lots of issues like that. The U.S. dollar, uh, you know, Treasury rate yields, stuff like that. Um, stuff which you know you never think about, but are critically important that people take for granted that um, you know that a lot of that things work function smoothly and correctly and in logical ways. And negative barrels of oil are not you know logical. Uh, and it shows that the market underneath is not smooth and it's it's, it's malfunctioning horribly. So um, I think it's more of I think the main takeaway here is that we're we're not out of the woods. Uh, there are some very broken markets, um, and if and it's very possible that you know some of these broken markets could metastasize and into something broader and, and hit the stock market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I definitely agree with you. Is it's a it's a moving market, and uh, you know the the news changes every single day, and we won't uh, like we talked about before. We won't be able to predict what happens tomorrow or two days from now, but uh, it, it, it is there are very broad implications of what happens uh, with these economic events. Uh, I, yeah, it's it's really interesting how uh, it, you know that analogy you gave about the couch and uh, basically uh, paying someone to take their couch uh, because those those were the analogies I also saw uh, online as well. It, it it's absolutely crazy. Um, most of the comments I saw online were saying that I didn't know that future or. Uh, contracts for uh buying oil could go negative at some point uh, i i think uh what most people were saying was mark this day because this is history being made and i think uh the oil futures went down to like what negative 38 dollars yeah. yeah. per <laughs> contract at one point it's insane yeah and uh I think we'll, we'll we'll save this for a future episode, but uh, of exactly how it happened. But it is a very a very technical uh, it's a very technical explanation. But a lot of things went wrong in sequence to end up with this really shockingly bizarre but real outcome. So um, and a lot of people lost money, and someone probably made a lot of money, but a lot of people lost money. Um, sadly enough. Yeah. Uh, that there are a lot of things to look at about how yeah. um, other people are kind of using their money, and it's it's quite scary to look at. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in a future episode. Yeah.
One other question uh, that, that we had was, um, you know, what are some stocks if you want exposure to the scotch industry? And uh, I think I'm just going to I'm going to seize this one for myself. Um, <laughs> there are a couple of but I, I think it's in mostly large conglomerates at this point. Um, there's one called Diageo. I don't know how to say it, but it's like a British company. And I think they own they've been gobbling up kind of premium spirits for a while. Uh, there's an American company like bourbon uh, and American ones. There's a stock called Brown Foreman, Browning Foreman, Brown Foreman. Um, and uh, uh, I've not looked at either of those stocks in a very long time. I think when China was maybe 10 years ago, maybe I looked at Diageo 10 years ago, when China was on the upswing and China was you know, becoming more rapidly, uh, was becoming wealthy. And one of the ways people spent their wealth was to buy um, spirits, spend more money in spirits. Um, and so Diageo was, was doing well. Um, curiously enough, there's a Chinese company called, uh, I don't know how to say it, Motai, Motai um, which is this Chinese distilled spirit. Um, but it's essential for doing business in China, apparently. Um, and uh, I think it's a bit of an acquired taste, but you know that's actually its own. It's that there's actually a company that makes it. It has its own stock. I've not looked at it. Um, I think it's called like I'm going to butcher the name horribly, but it's like Quechai Motai, I guess. I do apologize, uh, but that is that is possibly something to look at. So Diageo, I think it's like DGX. No, uh, I forget what the ticker is. Uh, Browning Foreman is probably like BF, and then. Uh, uh, you know, there are other kind of niche brands out there. Yeah, it, it's uh, de- definitely something that uh, we, we kind of uh, maybe might look at, but uh, I, I don't believe uh, you are invested in it. I know I'm not definitely invested in it, so uh, I, I don't think we both have done our due diligence in research, and so uh, it, it's a little uh just just kind of ideas to throw out there but not necessarily that something that we have done our research uh yeah complete research in yeah i would say look i mean at the end of the day I and mean, it's all really simple you think of a product and just just google it and see who owns it um you know you know just and that'll oftentimes lead you to a stock and then you can start to you'll know you know what to investigate at that point so um uh, you know, I, I think that's going to be a pretty common thing you hear from us. Just just Google it and uh, look it up on Wikipedia <laughs> and see who the owner is. And then, yeah, oftentimes it's a company and then you can kind of check out the stock. So, uh, um, you know, I definitely recommend that in, in this scenario as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do agree with that. Uh, we got to do more research and yeah. the easiest answer is to uh, just, just Google it. Yeah. So what do you think? Do we have time for more questions? Uh, sure. We, we can, uh, I, I guess tackle one more. Um, I, Let's I think, do one more. yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's do one more. Um, yeah. So, I, so, so I, you, yeah, go well, ahead. let me ask this one. So, so we had a question from one of our, one of our, our dear friends. Um, what are, what is a new grad supposed to do in a bad economy? Um, it's a tough question and a tough spot, but, but what do you think? Uh, well, uh, I, I just think that uh, I prefaced it earlier that first they sh- they need to um, create a 
what is it uh, a safety net first because you know that's obviously the most important but uh, on top of that it, it's it's really important to make sure that uh, if they are gainfully employed do does their employer uh, offer a company matched 401k right because uh, if they are offering a company matched 401k and you're not participating in that that's that's money you're leaving on the table uh like l- let's say uh that uh a company a, a specific a specific company uh, i'm just pulling out random numbers out of my ass because uh yeah just whatever uh so let's say a specific company they are offering a uh if you put in five percent into your own 401k um uh account they will also put in five percent of your own salary into your 401k uh account right so that's basically a hundred percent return on your uh just just putting in uh, money in the market that's a hundred percent return right there so i i don't see any reason why to not put in money into your own 401k account if that is uh if your employer does provide a company match to your 401k account if they don't uh well with 401ks uh some 401k administrators like uh, i don't know fidelity or vanguard or schwab i i I don't know the specific. Uh, I don't know what they specifically offer, but uh, some of those uh, administrators, they might not be able to offer you individual stock uh, stock investment uh, options. And if they do, um, like my 401k administrator is principal, and I I could invest in stocks, uh, in individual stocks with principal, but I would have to pay an expense up front. Uh, I, I think it's like five dollars, which is you, you know um, it, it's a significant amount uh, if, if you think about uh, what the uh, expense to how much money I would be putting into my 401k. It, I, I want to minimize the amount of expenses I have to pay out because I am. Uh, how do you say it? Uh, I am greedy as fuck, uh, basically. Uh, I, I don't want to pay as much as possible. So uh, instead of paying for uh, paying for that option, my 401k, I'd rather just fund my IRA, which is my individual retirement accounts, and uh, I'd rather put money in there so I can have the freedom and mobility to choose individual stocks that way but um, as a new grad in a bad economy you, you know a, a lot of these returns are uh, for retail investors I, I think are coming out of buying falling knives uh, buying the dip uh, rather than just going into the bull market because uh, th- I think there was a story about someone who always invested in the worst time possible but still made millions of dollars uh, just by 
holding and buying. So they would uh, put in money at the peak of a market right before before a downturn in the market. Uh, but they would hold and invest. They would not sell their positions. They would not sell, sell their stocks. They would just keep holding it for the long term. And overall, they would they would make uh, a lot uh, much more money uh, just because they were just uh, buying and holding and not selling. So in a in a bad economy, uh, since uh, I, I think most people they it, it's hard to see uh, when your account is constantly in the red, uh, constantly losing money. So uh, I, I would say just buying positions and holding those positions and not selling those positions just maybe um if you're already uh in a position um maybe just not look at it um i I know i do that Uh, i don't look at it um i don't look at my accounts every day because it's painful to see and it's it's difficult to see that uh i am not uh making money every day um but you know i'm in it for the long term and um i am trying to not be emotional about it um and i think that's something that uh is important to do during a bad economy just just not selling things based on reflexes What, what what do you think about that yeah i think um you kind of have to learn how to be an investor and kind of learn how to sit with bad days and learn to sit with frustration and not let it. Yeah. So I think actually Ken does really good good training for this. I mean, it's, it's, you have to conquer your emotions, um, which is incredibly hard, but, um, but Hey, you might have some practice. I I think also, even before I get to, you know, investing money, um, all of Ken Toto's just reminded all of his prior comments about, you know, kind of from personal finance front, how do you think about, um how to how to manage money um as the person working for the first time is really important i mean um you know set up a budget you know decide what you're going to pay for rent what have you and then you kind of at the end of all that you realize how much you can kind of figure out how much you want to set aside to invest in the market and then how do you put that to work he talked about and then um then once you're in the market there's like yeah all the joys of uh the joys and stresses of like, you know, God damn it. Why is this down? Um, you know, this fucking stock get again and, and so forth. So, um, and you gotta have to learn how to deal with that volatility. Um, but there's no, no substitute for actually living it, unfortunately. Definitely. It's, it's all part of the game. Um, uh, I, I call uh, it's not really a game because it's your money uh, that is kind of, is tangible, that is uh, losing value, but uh, it, it, it's in terms of uh, I think of it as like poker, right? Um, yeah. In poker, right? It, you you will win some, you will lose some, right? And that's part of the game. It's all statistics, right? You don't you can't predict every single hand in Texas Hold'em. It's just not possible. You, you can uh, you, you can try to put your bets on certain hands because you believe the statistics will favor you, but you can't 
predict exactly what hand um, will win you, uh, that you will win every single time. It's just not possible. Yeah, I actually think that's a great analogy. I remember um, at, my old, at my old job, um, there was the head of the Asia Growth Private Equity Group. He was this you know, Chinese, Chinese guy, um, and he was a pretty impressive fellow. And he was giving a speech to all the young, um, younger folks. Um, and at the end of it, he said, you know, if I want to learn about how, what someone's like as an investor, I watch how they gamble, and there there were some gasps and you know clutching of pearls at the statement. But there's a lot of you don't want to be gambling. You're investing. You're not gambling. You don't want to be gambling. But a lot of the experience of gambling, you know, some of that will carry over to investing. And you know, you you've got to get comfortable with um, the unexpected and both the upside and the downside, unfortunately. And um, you know, learning how to handle that is a learned skill, and uh, uh, gambling is is one way to practice parts of that skill set. It's not, it's not, you know, <laughs> you're trying not to gamble, but there are important lessons that could be learned, and so I think that's a great example, which, uh, um, which, which, uh, which you heard. Yeah. So. Um... I, I think this is all the time we have for uh, questions. Um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, th- this is uh, Stocks and Scotch, and uh, we will try to bring you more content in the future. Uh, I am your co-host, Kentaro. And I'm your other co-host, Eric. And uh, we're going to sign off now. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you all. Have a good night.